As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Welcome to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast, where we help leaders reframe success in leadership. We have a very special guest today. We have Tara Noland, who is the founding executive director, Greenlight Cincinnati, and she's going to tell us a lot about that. But we're going to go back and talk about some of the things that I know about Tara from earlier in her career and some of the lessons learned and how she's played that forward. So this is a great podcast. We have now 10,000 listeners for the podcast, and I am Jessica Barron. And I am Vice President of Executive Search for Centennial, and Talent Magnet Institute is an initiative of Centennial, Inc. So welcome to our podcast. Welcome, Tara. Thanks for having me. Tara Nolan, Founding Executive Director of Greenlight Cincinnati. Before we talk a little bit about Greenlight, I want to go back to when I first met you, Tara. Tara was the youngest at that time participant in a leadership program called Sea Change at the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber, and it was all about professional development and community engagement. Can you give me an idea of what the impact of that program was? Sure. So I remember applying for that program somewhat on a whim, and I had recently moved to Cincinnati and was looking to learn more about the city, make some new friends, feel like this was a place that maybe I would call home. And we really moved to Cincinnati thinking, oh, we'll probably live there for a year or two, and then we'll look for somewhere else and we'll move on. And I found the Sea Change program somewhat on a whim one day on the Chamber's website and thought, well, I don't know if they would consider me, but maybe I'll apply and just see what happens. And by some strange fluke, I got in at a very young age, and it was a really transformational experience for me in a couple different ways. One was that at the end of that year was the first time that I stopped talking about being in Cincinnati for a short time and started talking about living in Cincinnati without any immediate or long-term plans to change that. So we felt really rooted here after that in a way that we didn't at the beginning of the year. Secondly, the people that I met in that program were spectacular. And I think about it in kind of two different buckets. One was you, Jessica, uh, Dan Hurley, Julie Burnsot, some of the people who were running the program at the time, the speakers that we were exposed to, just the professional development that we got that for me as a 23-year-old was huge. It was something I'd never had before. And made such a big impact. And, you know, 11 years later, I can still remember a lot of what we talked about. And then the other part was being in a class with 53 other young professionals, some of whom were a fair amount older than me, I think probably upwards of 40 at that point, and really feeling like the peer support, the peer learning, the peer investment in each other was such a really transformational experience and one that propelled my career forward 10 years at minimum, just both the professional development and the networking connections that came out of that. Well, people still think I work at the Cincinnati Chamber, which I don't. (laughs) It was a wonderful career there. But I am a very big believer, as you know, not only in professional development, but the connections that you make when you're going through that experience. And one of the things that's always impressed me with you 
is that you paid it forward. You not only kept in contact with people for your own edification, but also to support others that you had gone through that experience with. And that's actually what I want to talk about a little bit today, because there's an awful lot of conversation about mentoring and it's like, will you be my mentor? And it's not always a panacea for what you need in order to be successful. And I wanted you to share some of your experiences there so that people might see it, maybe look at it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've been blessed in my life to have really incredible mentors. And I've also worked really hard to make myself somebody who is worth mentoring. So I've tried to be really careful and strategic when I have someone who's willing to mentor me to make sure that I'm using that person's time well. I think the most frustrating thing is when you meet with somebody who wants your advice and you give advice and then like you meet with them again and they've done nothing with that advice, like and you're having the same conversation over and over. So I've tried to make sure that the people that are mentoring me are the people who are giving the advice that is relevant to me at the time where I can do something about it and make it feel like I'm moving forward. I also feel, and I know people talk about a personal board of directors or a kitchen cabinet, which Those terms feel a little funny to me, but I think the idea is right. To me, I've never had one mentor that I would say, this is my mentor. I've been lucky enough to have a group of three or four at any given point in time. And some of the ones, you know, I can think of three probably in particular over the past five to seven years that have been really influential. One person who is 10 years ahead of where I thought at the time my career might take me. And so I was thinking, gosh, this is a person whose job I might want in 10 years. And I really want her to build into me and think about what I would need to do or learn or change to be able to take a role like that someday. Somebody who was at the very end of her career and had had a career that looked a lot like what I wanted mine to be. And the advice and perspective I got from those two people, even coming from the same sector, was so different. And the way that Sally at the end of her career could, she had a great perspective about what mattered and what didn't and what was really a long-term thing to be focusing on versus what was something I could probably let go of. And then it's really been rounded out with a for-profit person, so a totally different sector from a very major big company in town. But we have similar values and similar leadership approaches. And he has been really influential to me in that somebody totally outside of the sector, which sometimes can feel like, okay, wait, Does he get this part or not? But really, there's so much that's transferable between the two. And I think also for me as a young woman, having an older man, he's not old, but an older male mentor has been really helpful for me in that way too. And so these are the people that when I would think about changing a job, I would take the job description and say, what do you think? Like, does this look like something I should do? I don't know. And then also thinking about I don't know what would be next for me in three years or five years or 10 years, but I want to make sure that whatever is next, I'd be ready for. So what are the things that I should be thinking about now, the skills I should be honing, the people I should be meeting, and can you help me think that through? Mm -hmm. Very valid. You know, a lot of people, when they talk about networks and mentoring, they vary down online connections. And you have kept up with a lot of the people that you were in class with and have met actually two classes you were in We Lead also. One way that some people think is important to connect is through either Facebook or LinkedIn or other online ways of messaging people. What's your feeling about that? 
So I think what's been great about that is that Facebook and LinkedIn have allowed me to stay in contact with people that I built relationships with in person. And I think that's kind of a key differentiator. So there are people, you know, Sea Change was 11 years ago. We Lead was five years ago at this point. So these are people and industries that I don't see naturally, like in the course of my day all that often. And no one can probably maintain, I mean, that would be what, 110 new relationships that you would try to maintain, even if you would want to, doing that in a meaningful way where you would see someone every month would just be impossible. And so I think the way that social media, LinkedIn and Facebook in particular, has helped me is that it does feel like you know some of what's been going on with people, even though you maybe haven't talked to them in six months or a year. And it, I think, helps make things stay warm. So that when you do need to reach out to somebody or someone reaches out to you, it doesn't feel necessarily strange. But again, I think that that has only worked because we spent a year in each situation building an in-person relationship. So I don't have that same feeling about somebody who sends me a random LinkedIn request for assistance with something and says, can you introduce me to this person, even though you and I have never met? And like that feels very insincere and very icky to me in a way that somebody who I had a really close personal relationship with 10 years ago that's less personally close now, but is still rooted in that. Hearing from somebody like that on LinkedIn or Facebook feels great because I just haven't heard from that person in forever. And, oh, this is wonderful. This is a chance for me to help them or them to help me. Right. I have always said that anyone that invested in any of the leadership programs, of which there were 3,000 by the time I left that role at the chamber, if they put in that amount of energy and time and commitment, that anytime they called me, I would answer the phone. I would help. But someone that comes in over the transom, you know, the best time to leverage a relationship, uh, to leverage relationships is when you already have them. Right. And, you know, the worst time to leverage a network is when you're just building it. Because as you said, it's like, oh, why would I do that? You know, I only have limited time. So I think the online opportunities, as long as you have that grounding, mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think it makes a difference. That's good. So now we've got the value of these mentors that you've met, you know, in your career, you've made a lot of career decisions. Walk me through a little bit of you know, your career and where you started and what were some of the decisions along the way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. One career change I made pretty early was actually at the end of our sea change program, I switched jobs to work for somebody who had been in sea change with us. And so it was a small nonprofit, and he was looking for a program director, and I was really interested in the role. And so that was kind of how we got matched together. And I did that for a couple of years and then felt like I was ready to move on and do something a little bit different. And so reached out to you and Dan Hurley at the chamber. And I, Dan said, I think you should meet my wife. She's in this world. I think you guys would like each other. She could give you some advice. And we laughed later, like, Karen thought she was meeting me to give me advice. I thought Karen was meeting me to give me advice. And Dan knew he was setting us up in, I think, kind of like a soulmate way that we would really love each other. And so I ended up moving to 4C for Children to work for Karen in development. And it was phenomenal. I think the way being early in my career and working for somebody who was later in her career and the way that she was willing to invest in me and make sure that I had opportunities, like she would rather me have an opportunity than her because she knew that I was going to be there longer and that she was ready to let some of that stuff go. And so that was just a really transformative role for me there. And then when we had a CEO who retired and 
It was a time of a lot of transition at 4C. I wasn't looking to make a move necessarily, but I think in those times of transition, you can't help but notice things in a way where you're just, I'm like, oh, I'm tired. There's been so, so much transition. And so when the green light job came across my desk, I remember, I remember forwarding it to a friend and saying, what the heck is this? Like, what do you give away money? Do you raise money? What is this? And Good segue. Yeah, good segue. Like, what the heck is this? Right. <laughs> right. So Greenlight is a nonprofit, and we work to help improve the lives of low-income children and families in urban communities. And we do that by identifying gaps in social services in the nonprofit sector, and then looking to fill those gaps with the most effective, most innovative nonprofit solutions. And so we're trying to scale things that work to our city so that they can make an impact here in an efficient and an effective way for low-income children and families. And so that kind of kitchen cabinet of advisors that I talked to, I remember meeting with people and saying, like, what do you think? This is a risk. This is like something that's launching here that's new. This is a reputational risk for me. This is something that's so outside of my comfort zone. Am I ready for this? Am I good enough to do this? This feels really scary. And really, I think it was the guidance of particularly those three people, but a couple other people who really encouraged me to say, you're ready for this. We've been planning for this. Like, this is exactly the right thing. In some ways, it sometimes feels like they knew more about what was best for me and what I would be good at than I maybe knew. And so it was really that pushing that pushed me to do it, really. What our podcast listeners can't see is that I'm smiling. And I'm smiling because Tara said, am I good enough? In my experience of working with some of the top leaders in our region as well as nationally, it's always the people that are not only good enough, that are the best, that challenge themselves to say, am I good enough? Am I doing enough job? How can I be better? So thank you for your modesty. But yes, you are good enough. <laughs> so there was a big aha for me when I went to your dinner for Greenlight, because I also did not understand the power of the organization until I heard some of the participants who said, well, nobody told us what to do. We got together with our peers and decided that, you know, maybe we should take this money that they're investing in us and either buy a used car or send our child to a special preschool or whatever met the needs of our family, not necessarily what was in a book somewhere. Mm -hmm. How do you have the guts to do that with money that is donated by people, yeah. you know, and what if they make the wrong choice? And what is the wrong choice? Right. You know, some of it is that we spend a year figuring out what is the right thing for Greenlight to support each year. And so the program you're talking about is called the Family Independence Initiative. They trust and invest directly in low-income families, and that includes giving access to capital. So small amounts of money, $1,200 a year that families can use to work to achieve their goals. But no one is telling families what their goals should be because no one's telling you as a middle or upper class person what your goals should be. And so the idea that we do that to low-income families is insulting. And so when we, FII is different. It's a pretty disruptive approach. And in some ways, Greenlight was brought here to be disruptive, to say, if we do the same thing over and over again, we can't expect different results. We can't expect things to get better in our community if we're not ever willing to take any chances. That said, 
we spend a whole year doing what we call diligence to try to figure out what the best thing is to bring. That helps mitigate some of that risk. So some of that is by making sure that the model is really effective. We talk to board members, we talk to staff, we talk to participants. The other part is what we do on the local end to make sure that it would be a good fit here. So here that meant developing a really substantial partnership with Greater Cincinnati Foundation, working with the Child Poverty Collaborative. There were, I think, 20-some other nonprofit organizations that helped with the initial family recruitment. And so in some ways, it feels like it was the biggest risk I ever took. And in other ways, it feels like, how could we not do this? Like, it was so needed and so necessary in our community. And to not do it, it just felt so logical and so necessary that the risk part of it almost fell away if that makes sense. Well, it was really inspiring to hear people so proud of their initiative and how they were taking. So, yeah, I'm a believer. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to Jessica to mentoring where there's a belief in that model that low-income families have a lot to offer both to each other and to larger society as a whole. And so it's not just me as a middle-class person who has something to offer to somebody who is low-income. That's not true. There's a lot that everybody has to offer. And so whether that mentoring is being done in a peer capacity or in some other way, everybody has value that they can offer in a mentoring relationship in some way or another. Of course, I agree with that. Tell me, early in, I mean, an early could be in when you were 23, when you were at First and Sea Change, but maybe earlier in your formative years, you have made your career in helping and caring fields. Was there someone or something that really motivated you to say, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going. When I was a junior in college, I took a social work class on social inequalities. And I took it as an elective. It filled a bucket. And I remember being in that class and thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't even know you could study this, but this makes so much sense to me. And I kind of moved heaven and earth and took an ungodly amount of credit hours to try to finish add a social work major to what I was doing and still graduate on time. And I remember my dad was frustrated. He always thought I had a business mind and I should think about studying business. And I really felt like there were so many really amazing, really talented people who were going to go into business. And if I didn't work for P&G, P&G was going to be okay. Like P&G was not going to close because I didn't go into business. And it didn't feel quite that same way in the social services sector. There are fewer people who are going into the sector. The pay is not as good. It doesn't attract in the same way as some of these more fancier jobs. And so I really felt like if I didn't go into this, maybe the sector couldn't be as strong, that I would add something in a way that I wouldn't necessarily do in some other ways. And so that was how I got into it. And I don't know if I'll be in there forever. I mean, I like would be open-minded to trying other things at some point, but there also is something about knowing that even on your worst day at work, like you're still doing something that makes a difference. You're still doing something that helps people. You're still doing something that has meaning. And I think that those of us who have that, like whether you're a teacher, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, whatever, I think when you have that, you don't even realize what a fueler it is until maybe you don't have it anymore. And so that's a box that I'd have to figure out how to check in a different industry. And I don't know whether or not it would for me in the same way. Were your parents supportive of your career? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they always were. 
and just trying to, I think they were just grateful I ended up. They're like, oh God, you finally made up your mind. That's what, that's great. Just, just make up your mind to do something. <laughs> and as you look at your young children, I'm sure you're trying to project forward and see, mm-hmm. you know, what's going to happen there mm-hmm. and what kind of a world they're going to create and leave. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Also, as part of your profession, you're also active in the community Mm -hmm. as well. And you've had some pretty strong leading roles in the community with Junior League in particular. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So Junior League was an organization I joined around the same time of Sea Change and, again, was new to a city and felt like it's hard to make friends when you move somewhere as an adult. And so this felt like a place that I could meet some other women who could become good friends. And that's really what the organization has been for me. The Junior League is about community impact and about training volunteers. And I've spent my Junior League career in the training volunteer side of things. So the community impact work that the league does is so important, but that bucket for me gets filled really in my professional life. And so for me, it's been way more about the leadership development, the board service training, the development and coaching into other women, we sometimes will joke that the Junior League is a giant leadership playground. And so it's a place where you can lead a committee of volunteers that even if you've never supervised anybody before, you can kind of stretch your muscles in a way that is really great. And I think particularly for younger women, you can try out marketing, you can try out social media, and and you can really build your portfolio in that way. And from what I've heard from search experts too, that that kind of volunteer work is not to be minimized, that you really do learn a lot in those situations and that maybe supervising volunteers might even be harder than supervising paid staff. But that has been another, an organization that really has contributed so much, probably so much more to my personal leadership development and my approach to the world. I mean, it's where I learned to delegate in a way that five years ago, I was not doing well. And now I feel like that's a skill that I have honed over the past couple of years and particularly through that. Right. And then even through Junior League and through all the organizations you participated in, that's, again, leveraging and developing that strong network Mm -hmm. that you have in the community. So, you know, I'm a big believer in that. One of the things that you've done, especially in the not-for-profit area, is put together a executive directors group, and it's fairly specific to young executive directors. Why is that so important? So this is a group that I actually was lucky to be invited to there. So there are eight of us, and we're all young women executive directors of small nonprofit organizations in Cincinnati, and everyone started their jobs at about the same time. And so it's become a really incredible peer support network. And honestly, probably the most important professional development I've done over the past three years. And it's everything from I'm having a staff challenge and I need some coaching on it to how do you navigate a board meeting or I'd like to present this information differently or um, and so it becomes a really a sharing of best practices. But, you know, to say it's lonely at the top is perhaps a little bit dramatic, but I found that, like, you know, as I've risen up, I have a boss still, but she lives in a different city. So it's different. It's very different from what it was like when I reported to somebody who sat next to me in a physical space and I was with them all the time. And so having that support and in a trusting place where we can say, I'm really struggling with this and I feel like I need 
some resources or I need some support. And what have you found works? That has been tremendous. And so the mentoring and peer support that we do for each other is if there's any piece of advice I would give to anybody, it would be to put together some group like that where you can be lucky enough. And we've been lucky to find people who have been able to build a trusting relationship and we've been able to help each other navigate some pretty pretty tough situations. For sure. Yeah. I thought that was really helpful. What else would you like to share with our listeners about the important work that you do, both the volunteer and the professional side, how that interplays with you in your personal life? What should we know about you? I guess for me, at the end of the day, everything that I've done, it all like comes back to relationships and people, particularly women, like the female friends in my life, the work that I've done a lot of times with low-income families has been about women and children. And I've always believed that like the best way you can help a child is to help their mom. And so I think that the way like building into women is something that has mattered to me so much. And it's mattered to me before I had two daughters, but now it matters to me, I think probably even more now that that is something that is part of my everyday. And I think a lot about, to your point about their future and what the world will be like for them and what are the things that I want them to learn and see and take away from watching me do certain things. If you're gone at a junior league meeting, do they see then though that you're doing this great, important community work and what message does that send? And so having those conversations. When you care about people, I think that's when all this stuff sort of seems to come together. And I've been lucky enough that the work that I've done in my professional life has been complementary to the work that I've kind of supplemented it with in my volunteer world. And that it's just been so personally fulfilling to me in a way that I know not everybody's career, like you feel like you get up and go to work and it just fills your bucket in all the things that you would hope for. And so I understand that that's a very lucky place to be. And so it's just been a kind of a framework and a common thread that's run through through all everything. Well, Tara, thank you very much. I have learned a lot from you and as I continue to do. So I've been speaking with Tara Nolan and Tara is the founding executive director of Greenlight Cincinnati. And she's an extraordinary young leader that is paying it forward to other leaders as well, not to mention her children. My name is Jessica Barron, and I am the Vice President of Executive Search here at Centennial Inc. And you've been listening to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast, where we help leaders reframe success in leadership. Thank you so much for listening and appreciate your participation. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. 
The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr., Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.